0: Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammasambuddhassa Homage to the Buddha the blessed noble and fully self-enlightened one. I hope you don't draw any meaning from that small hesitation. (laughs) The mind suddenly stops. Um, I just wanted to carry on a little bit with the Buddha's life, and um, something I should have actually said in the last talk, but uh, better late than never. The idea of spiritual reading as opposed to the way we would normally read. <clears throat> so we normally read really with uh, um, an effort to accumulate knowledge, trying to gather information. But spiritual reading is, I mean, for spiritual purposes, is, um, was developed, I think, best by the Benedictines. And they, used, they had these three methods called Lectio, med- Meditatio, and Contemplatio. So one reads uh, a book, which uh, an inspiring book rather than something like, a, say, a book by Ajahn Chah or something like that, <clears throat> which is written from the heart rather than an academic book, although even academic books can inspire. And uh, you read it as if you're reading poetry or listening to music. So you're reading along and, of course, uh, it's going in, whatever you're saying. And every so often there'll be a paragraph, a sentence or a phrase which seems to hit, to sort of catch you. And what you do is you keep, <clears throat> you keep repeating that until, as it were, you've absorbed it. Like you might listen to a piece of music over and over again, or read a poem over and over again. You're not thinking about it, you're, you're allowing the heart to grasp it, you might say, sort of an intuitive feel. And then when, that's, when, when you feel you have had enough of that, you just stop still, and maybe some thoughts come around it, some ideas, some thoughts. So you can follow them for a little while and develop them, and then you just drop them and you fall into silence. And then you go to the next passage. And uh, what, what you may find is it, it, has, a, uh, it has an inspiring effect. It makes you, makes you want to go and sit, as it were. And uh, it's interesting because um, it pops out when you're talking every so often. You haven't, you haven't tried to remember it or anything, but it's there, as it were, more deeply uh, absorbed. <clears throat> uh, and in a sense, that's the, uh, that's the purpose, really, isn't it, of, of all art, is to um, allow us to, to re-experience in our own way what somebody else has experienced. Um, T.S. Eliot called it um, the objective correlative. Need I explain? <laughs> uh, what, he, what he meant by that, as I understand it anyway, was that I have an experience and I want to pass it on to you. So <clears throat> I have to find some symbolic way in which your heart and mind can, as it were, uh, communicate with me or with my mind. So I have an idea, say music, I have a, it comes out as a feeling, huh? uh, say joy for a start, say for, for uh, as a, as a, something different, so joy comes up in the heart, and I'm a musician, and so I, I want to express that joy, and I express it through a certain medium, so and it's specific culturally, isn't it? <clears throat> you know, I mean, unless you've listened to, say, Chinese or Japanese music, or, or even Indian music, you've got to get into that sim- symbolism, that way of expressing these particular. Uh, Emotions and understandings, you know, music understanding, and uh, that way, you know, we uh, two people can communicate at uh, a deeper level than just an intellectual level. You know, if I say I'm I'm depressed, that's one thing, but if I write a piece of music that makes you depressed, then <laughs> we have we have some deeper communication. So. <clears throat> Uh, when I'm going through the life of the Buddha here, I'm really just uh, allowing thoughts to arise in that way and just to, uh, just to see what comes up. And often when I go through the same thing, different, different thoughts come up because uh, other information from somewhere else has come in and other feelings come up. So every time I reread the life of the Buddha, uh, there's always something, something new comes up for me around it. So... Uh, this isn't uh, an academic approach. You know, I mean, whether it's history or myth, it's, in a sense, immaterial, because it lies there within the Buddhist tradition as a sort of archetype, as a sort of an exemplar whom we're following. And anyway, uh, I'm not an academic. I'm I'm a would-be academic. So (laughs) so you have to take everything I say with a pinch of salt. (laughs) So um, the first thing is that... uh, you know, we, we got to the point where he was about to be born. And um, he was born somewhere around 2,300, 2,500 years ago. And when you consider that, the length of time, and you consider how many religious leaders have probably appeared, started something, and then their, their offering, their teaching has sort of disappeared. Um, one example of that would be, say, the James. The Jains, uh, if you look at the ancient maps, were, I think, just about as numerous at some point, uh, maybe even more numerous than uh, Buddhists in India. Uh, But somehow they fizzled out and are now down to somewhere around three million, which in the population of India is is very small. Which doesn't mean that the teachings of uh, the Nigantha were wrong or anything like that, but... There's, there's, there's obviously some feeling there of fading out. I mean, it may, it may grow again. But there's lots of little religions, and especially these days, um, you know, with gurus popping up here and there, <laughs> and then and, and that sudden rush of interest, and it builds up, and then it, it slowly sort of dies away. Um, so when you think that this is a 2,500-year-old tradition, you know, uh, that inspires faith, and inspires a certain trust. So remember that faith in, uh, in our understanding, is not a belief. A belief is putting faith in a statement. So if you were to say, I believe the Buddha was enlightened, you're, you're in great danger of being deluded. There's a, there's a, <laughs> there's a difference in, in believing it, in believing that statement, and in trusting it. And in a sense, we don't know, do we? We don't know what the hell he was talking about until we get there. And when we get there, we don't know whether it's the end there may be something more. Who knows? So it's a case of uh, trusting, and the trust grows um, as we practice because we get the benefits of it, and that leads us towards uh, that goal. And hopefully, we get a peak of it, a little, a little touch of it. And then we, and then at that point, that faith uh, becomes immovable because now we've we've had a taste of that end of that end uh, that we're moving towards. So, when we consider that for 2,500 years, millions of people have been practicing in, in, in this way and have been considering the life of the Buddha, and it's affected them, and a culture has grown, cultures have grown around it. Um, one, uh, it's it sort of, it, it's part of our, uh, part of the, what you might call the, the bases of our faith, the fact that it's been such a long and deep tradition, and that, and that it's spread over cultures. So obviously similar to uh, Christianity and Islam, which have been able to go beyond uh, greatly their cultural bounds and, uh, and, and move into different cultures being developed by them in their own way. And so uh, there is that, uh, I think, that um, trust comes with something which has such an ancient history. Hmm? So that's something that... Um, you see in, in the sense of this meditation and all that sort of stuff one thinking of that it raises that feeling of faith it raises that feeling of trust you see And you sort of stay with it you sort of delight in it you see so remember that part of our practice is going through all this hell stuff but the other part is uh, developing what is beautiful in us you know don't you know just when something joyful comes up don't kick it out <laughs> say oh. You know, where's all, where's all my depressions and anxieties? You know, <laughs> it's a case of, of when, um, if you're reading, say, in the library or you're listening to a tape, and suddenly you get this lovely uh, PT come up, this, 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 this joy around the teaching or this interest, you see, then stop the tape, stop the book, you know, and just stay with it, you know, and let, let the heart absorb it, don't, don't sort of rush through it, as it were. That age, of course, just as an aside, was quite an age for human, uh, for human beings because at the same time there was Moses, there was Lao Tzu in uh, China, Socrates, and it's known in the history books as the Axial Age. Something happened in human consciousness. Something moved, something something turned. And from that you can say history begins. History, written history, the history that we know actually begins around about that time. History in, in India begins with the life of the Buddha, frankly. That's, that's when it begins at that time. You know, uh, history in the sense of facts. So anyway, he, um, he's uh, born, and um, being a very advanced being, he's, he's, chosen, he's chosen his mother and father, and seems to have chosen rather well. Uh, he's he's the, a local potentate, and uh, his mother also belongs to uh, a family which is also rich and powerful. So he's uh, he's got the good karma there, you see. He didn't. <laughs> and um, as you know, she uh, she wants to go home to have a child, and he's born under these sala trees on the way. She gives birth in the park at Lumbini. So this is the theme, isn't it? The Buddha and nature. He's born uh, under a tree. He's enlightened under a tree, and he finally dies under a tree. You know, and that that sort of connection uh, with nature, with that um, uh, something that you know in our society obviously you can, you can lose, especially living in a city. <clears throat> I remember I was once out in a meditation center, and this little chick had, had fallen on the ground. It was just it had fallen out of a nest, and being a townie, I just looked at it and wondered what to do, you see. <laughs> And I'm looking at this chick thinking, now, you know, what do I do with this, you see? So I went down to uh, pick it up and put it on the wall just in case the cat would, uh, would take it, you see. And as I bent down to uh, pick it up, uh, it sort of bit at me and I sort of leapt out of my skin. <laughs> <And> <laughs> this little tiny little bird scaring me to hell. So <laughs> eventually I, uh, I did finally get it on the wall and I don't know what happened to the little thing. And I was saying afterwards, that I, you know, I was saying, probably if I'd have found that in the town, I'd have probably stamped on it and put it in the bin. <laughs> that's, how, that's how detached you can become from living beings and nature. So, again, it's a case of uh, just recollecting on those things and uh, what nature means to us. Walking in nature, being close to it, um, uh, hugging a tree occasionally. Uh, you know, how, how close are we to... Uh, to the ground, to the actual earth that we live on, you know, um, do we ever uh, do we ever sit and consider how we are utterly dependent on what the earth is giving us in terms of the produce of the ground you know uh, the air that we breathe, things like that, the water that we drink you know where's it you know and that that understanding of the body being um, just in this comp- in this constant change of of uh, it's like a, a double-edged fountain with with stuff coming in at, on one aperture and, uh, and and then escaping through all the rest <laughs> so <laughs> and, and you get the feeling of the body not being at all uh, static uh, but this flow it's actually in a state of flow it's it's, it's digesting and giving away and receiving and digesting and giving away so you get this this feeling of being a little bit part of that of that process that we see in nature Then of course um, it's uh, a consideration to think about the importance of our parents. So he's chosen these two people. Well, I doubt if we chose uh, the people whom we uh, ended up being born uh, with, and uh, just to recollect, you know, what we owe our parents. That sort of um, usually we uh, we hold on to the to the more sticky uh, bad memories that we have of them. But uh, when you consider what our parents actually did for us, then uh, you come to the conclusion of the Buddha that even if you were to carry your mother and father on your shoulders all your life, you would not have repaid them their gift. Even if they kicked you around a lot, (laughs) you're still here. You made it. (laughs) And, uh, you know, parents being uh, so much part of our makeup, you know, even the little habits we have, uh, just, just the way that we do things, we pick up from our mother and father. Just, just that intimacy that we have, you know, especially with our mothers. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, his mother dies within a week. So one wonders what effect that might have had on a weak, a week old baby. Uh, we know that the intimacy is already there. It's already there in the womb. Uh, the child actually knows the mother's voice. Feel of the mother, you know, and having tasted her milk and got close to her, and then suddenly there's a change. There's a change of environment, and uh, although it's her mother's sister, uh, one wonders whether whether this whether how that that early child would have been affected by that. Knowing later on what identity crisis he goes through, his existential crisis, you know, sickness, old age, and death. Um, uh, there's a, a suggestion from our own in-depth psychology that, that this was the beginning of his suffering in terms of that awakening to, um, to loss. Never mind the birth process. So now he's, um, he's born, and um, the next thing is, of course, is that he is um, recognized by the seer, the Asita. And Asita says he's either going to be a world-conquering monarch or he's going to be fully enlightened, a fully self-enlightened being. This business of the the world-conquering monarch is like an alter ego that sort of runs through the scriptures. There's there's always a picture of this monarch who rules the world out of the Dharma uh, by, by way of the precepts. And it runs almost you might say, concurrent with, with the idea of the Buddha being the fully self-enlightened being. In other words, if he, hadn't have become, uh, if he hadn't have chosen that path, this is what he would have done. He would have set his horse loose, this is the way he did it, and followed his horse, and wherever the horse went, he'd have conquered, and eventually the whole world would have been brought under his Dharma rule. Uh, the, uh, the story about the Chakravartins is that uh, finally one of them doesn't keep the precepts, and the whole thing begins to collapse. And there's one discourse which is rather interesting from a modern point of view, well, from any point of view, but specifically these days, and that is that poverty is the root of social evil. That's, that's, that's what the particular discourse says. And, uh, uh, and that's something also that we can sort of think about. But this idea of the split within us between the worldly life and the spiritual life, see, that stays with us all the way, doesn't it? That stays with us all the way. And there's a... <clears throat> there's a uh, not, that, not to say that we're going to become world-conquering monarchs, but there's always that, <laughs> there's always that pull towards the world, you see. Uh, what is the world? It's riches, isn't it? Riches, power, uh, Riches, power, fame. Uh, and sensual pleasures you know, the pleasures of life and so even here you see you know when when you're doing your meditation and you get that you get that feeling that really which is not sustainable from the body's point of view that that you might have a cup of tea and there's no need for it uh, and then you might say oh there's the world conquering monarch you see i have to I have to let go of that <laughs> and then they get back onto your seat so, if you if you consider that there's always that split within us, you know, one of renouncing the world and one of being dragged away into it, and uh, it's it's just good to to see it in these terms. So here, the Buddha has been uh, prophesied that he's going to take the one or the other. So now he's um, <clears throat> he's brought up in a very. Um, um, worldly way so once his father knows that he could shoot off and become an ascetic he definitely doesn't want that he wants him to follow him in the family and, uh, and build up the empire and um, he uh, you know he gives him all these uh, he surrounds him with with pleasures basically this is this is the t- this is the tale but i would i would have thought that his particular group the the, uh, the warrior caste the Kshatriya caste which were the dominant caste in that part of india as you move towards what is now bengal it would have been the brahmins but in his part of india it was definitely the, the uh, warrior caste which were the top caste that's why you'll see him always taking the mickey out of the brahmins <laughs> in the in the scriptures well, a true brahmin does this you know and does that he doesn't do this so <laughs> he never talks about the uh, uh, the warrior caste the true warrior caste is always the brahmin <laughs> so he's, he gets his knife in occasionally you know in, of course, a very compassionate way, I was suggesting. <laughs> it's, it's usually, of course, Brahmins that are approaching him when he's talking about Brahmins. So he's there in, this, um, in, in his palaces, and uh, you know, we go through this whole business of an identity crisis. So it's very interesting, really, uh, from a point of view of our, the general growth of our psychology. Um, he 's married around about the age of sixteen. This is the myth which would have been normal in those days. We know in India you, you get married pretty soon and um, somewhere in his mid twenties, I would have thought uh, and you, this happens I think to a lot of people um, the, the, you know it 's the first sort of crisis in life uh, about leaving go, letting go like youth is youth is passing there's some there 's something in in within the person which is which is saying, actually, let's get serious. So it's usually around about 25 onwards that people get married, uh, they get a job, uh, and they, they they stop being fools. They try and and they think more about what they can get out of society, and and this carries on, doesn't it, until <clears throat> uh, until you the midlife crisis when you when you're looking for a bridge to throw yourself off. So it's a case of <laughs> in that in that. That time of the age of 25, I'm not at all surprised that he suddenly begins to waken up to the reality of life itself, having had such a good time for 25 years, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And uh, this crisis has two parts, which is rather interesting. Um, the first part is uh, he's had a, they've had a good old party, and there's a, there's a disgust comes up. And um, this is the story of Gautama Buddha, and it's the Jataka. It's one of the tales, and it's, um, it's uh, creative. And uh, it's got some lovely passages. And here it's describing how he woke up after this night, and, uh, and, and this is what he saw, you see. Um, As the Bodhisattva woke up and sat cross-legged upon the couch... He saw those women, see these are the women who had been enticing him and dancing, etc., etc., who had lain aside their musical instruments and were sleeping, some of them with saliva pouring out of their mouths, some with the bodies wet with saliva, some grinding their teeth, some talking in their sleep, some groaning, some with gaping mouths, and some others with their clothes in disorder, revealing plainly those parts of the body which should be kept concealed for fear of shame." Mm. He saw the disorder in which they were and became all the more detached from sensual pleasure. The large terrace of his mansion, magnificently decorated and resembling the abode of Saka, king of the gods, appeared to him as an existence, seemed to him a house in flames. He made the inspired utterance, alas, this is beset with obstacles, alas, it is constricted. And his mind was greatly drawn towards renunciation. Now, Unfortunately, it, it stresses the business of disgust. Uh, and to me that's always been not a very good word. They often they often talk about they translate this word nibida. Nibida, which also uh, you'll see comes up in, in in one of the Vipassana knowledges, nibida. And they for some reason they always describe it as, as a disgust. Now to me the word disgust always has an aversion to it. An aversion. But uh, if one were to enter the life, to, to enter a spiritual life with aversion, then obviously there's, there's some feeling there of pushing away, of not wanting. And, and that will come back upon, upon you because you have to face that disgust. You have to go beyond disgust. Uh, sometimes boredom. Sometimes, it's, yes, it's described as boredom. But I think the real word in English is weariness. Weariness. Um, when you've done something often enough, which has brought you pleasure, you get weary. You, you might listen to the same piece of music and get a lot, and then, it, then you become weary of it. It's like you've had enough of it. And one of the, the things that you might have experienced is, for instance, playing uh, tiddlywinks with a child. I don't, know, I don't know what you call it in the States, but it's just flicking little uh, things into a pot. And a three-year-old might come to you and say, come and play tiddlywinks. So uh, because, you, because you want to communicate and you enjoy being with the trio, they're delightful little beings, uh, you play tiddlywinks. And after a good 10, 15 minutes of uh, tiddlywinks, when all the little things are in the pot, uh, you know, uh, you think it's been a good little game in your way, but the kid's jumping up and down saying, more, 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 you see. And suddenly you're saying, well, you know, I've got to get on, I've got to do this. <laughs> because another game would definitely make you feel weary. So it's a case of, uh, it's that sort of... Uh, if you can get the idea of world weariness, like you've had enough, you know, enough of trying to get rich, enough of getting into the rat race, enough of worrying about this, worrying about that. And it's not, it's not, it's not that you're disgusted with it or angry with it, it's just you've had enough. Um, I had a, a friend of mine who told me that, um, you know, he was a bit of a jazz sort of follower. And... Um, he went along to this jazz concert, and uh, like just the way through it, there just came this sense of weariness. There wasn't a disgust. It wasn't. A, it was just like enough, I've, and that was it. He, he didn't didn't need it again. So um, there's uh, there's 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 something about uh, staying with a pleasure, you know. Be careful that you don't push pleasure away, you see, out of fear, but actually. Experience the pleasure fully, you know. Experience the, if, for instance, you've got—I mean, you can try it. I—I—I <laughs> I, uh, I, I shall be in another country. So you won't be able to sue me. Uh, <laughs> if you—if you have an obsession with something like, um, uh, like food, you know, um, say you're a chocoholic, something like that. And so, take a piece of chocolate and and really nibble at it, and make every nibble. Worth its salt. Actually, completely taste it, let it drip licorice like round your tongue, slap it around the mouth, uh, do all your salts, do everything you can to get the fullness out of that. And you may find that after one piece, you've actually had enough. <laughs> because normally speaking, you're, you're, you're feeding into something else when we're obsessed with something, you know, when we're addicted to something. You're trying to feed something else. And when you see how horrible chocolate can be, then (laughs) one becomes weary of chocolate. Uh, Just as uh, I always remember, slightly to a slight point, but you know, during student days, one tends to drink a bit. And uh, I remember going through this period just getting absolutely palatic. I don't think you have this syndrome in the United States so much, but um, in Britain, we have what's called binge drinking and and you just go, you just drink. You just drink, drink, drink till you drop. And uh, it seemed, I know the, the, con, the, the people on the continent seem to be getting into it now, so it's not a, it's not a very good thing. But uh, I remember waking up, l- literally, I woke up in the gutter. I, was, <laughs> I woke up in the, in the early morning and my head was in the gutter. <laughs> my, <laughs> my body was laying on the pavement and my head was in the gutter. And I woke up and turned over, and I thought, oh, my God, now this is terrible. And, and I got up, and, you know, these, you know, this throbbing head and all that, and feeling sick. And, and the closest place to me was a graveyard. So I entered into the graveyard and lay, because I was feeling so bad, I lay on top of this grave. <laughs> and it slowly dawned upon, this is long before I ever thought about Buddhism, and it slowly dawned upon me that the suffering that I was getting from the pleasure wasn't worth it. It wasn't, it wasn't worth getting that drunk. So I set myself this task that the next time I'd get tipsy, but I wouldn't go over the top. And to my surprise, I really enjoyed myself. And so I came off all that binge drinking and still have a decent liver. So you can see it's... A- you see like you know this this like sometimes there's a lovely little poem from Blake, which I was trying to find, but i, I just can 't get it. He says it so beautifully um that the the road the road to salvation is often through the road of excess, in other words you you get to this point where you've just saturated yourself so much with this stuff like like you just don 't want it anymore you're overweary with it, you know so that uh, when it comes to pleasure, you see. You know, here especially, you know, uh, make, make it a real exercise in food to really get in contact with what is pleasure. and get in contact with the tongue. Um, when you uh, approach the food, you see, uh, get in contact with the body, and there's hunger there. So, this hunger is mixed in, is, is both a, a natural appetite coming from the body, but there's greed there right there's a seeking of happiness in food a seeking of relief i mean after that sit you know you'd really want to <laughs> have some happiness so there's this seeking of happiness in the food and that's that's greed yeah so and as you approach the table you see and you you uh, you put the food on your plate just just be be aware of how much you're putting and be aware of the feelings and the and the contact you're making with the food and the way the mouth is salivating and all that and remind yourself, you can always go for seconds. Yeah? So then, when you eat and you're sitting in front of the plate, see, just wait, get in contact with the body and just feel that magnet. You know, like you want to, you want to become, you want to become the, the, what is it, ghetto, ghetto we had today? You want to become that, that food. And then, <clears throat> uh, you know, mindfully making that intention, you see, and lifting, lifting up, scooping, lifting. And then as that food touches the tongue, you get this amazing explosion of, of of delight, you see. Now stay with that, stay with that at that physical level, you see, and make that very clear to yourself. This is taste, this is the physicality, the basic ground upon which all my happiness rests. You know, this two inches of skin on top of the tongue. <laughs> At this moment, my happiness is dependent on that. So, and I'm chewing. I'm feeling the texture of it, and I'm 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 actually we're actually feeling the the sensations of pleasure. See, what is pleasure? That's the question. What is pleasure? It's not a it's not a question of trying to describe it, but of a direct experience of the tongue in delight. And then when when that's really really clear in your mind. As it were, and you've penetrated it. You, know? you might take a few bites, as it were. Sometimes, or even at the beginning, it depends. You know, it depends how you want to tackle this. You can come away a little bit, and you can see that it's surrounded with this joy. See, and that's that's the mind, that's the heart. It's it's sort of delighted in this food. Hmm? And then, if you stay off it like that, you see, especially if you uh, just leave the, the the fork on on the table there, and just and just stay there looking at the food, you can see that there is this desire for the sensual pleasure. There is this um, desire to eat more. And somehow, what was being satisfied when we were eating now becomes like a, like a magnet, like a drawer, you know, like, like sucking you into the plate, you see. <laughs> and if you, can, if you can just stay with that, you see, you know, stay with that. And all we're doing is we're just investigating. Because remember, part of it is natural. Part of it is appetite. you know, you've got to eat and just stay with it, you see. And then as you keep eating, as you keep eating uh, and, and investigating these three qualities, right, the, the basic sensual uh, um, stimuli that are coming into the brain and which the mind is working with to produce an idea, spaghetti, lettuce, yeah? I mean, what, what are the sensations it comes up with where it says spaghetti, lettuce? So then um, uh, and, and you're aware of the, of the delight, you that's, that's to be had. you know, delight in food is, is, there's nothing actually there's nothing unskillful about that. Uh, the heart should respond and, uh, with delight to things, but there is that something uh, twisting it, something putting a, a kink in it of that consciousness wanting to seek delight, to, um, to somehow identify with it, to grasp it, to attach to it. and you you might be able to feel it as as a sort of magnet as a draw. It gets sucked and if we keep eating like that very at some point we get this beginning to get these really clear signals from the body enough you see enough Hmm? now you can't always trust that because if if you have some emotion in the body like you you feel a bit anxious or something then it's tight and it doesn't take all that much food but let's say just generally speaking you are relaxed you're in a a decent mood. So the body begins to give you this, these, these um, signals. enough, enough, you see. Now normally we override that and just go for the cream cake. Yeah? But here, because we're strictly doing our meditation, we hang on in there, you see, and we feel the override, more, more. See? And And you, <laughs> and you sort of hang on in there. You, you wait, 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 and wait, right to the very end of that. back yeah, right to the very end. Now, what we want to make a distinction between is the satisfaction, to use that word, the satisfaction of eating something fulfilling desire. The satisfaction, which, remember, increases our attachment, increases our desire, and after a little while, we want more, more, more. So that's satisfaction. And call it contentment, which is when the mind is not in a state of desire. Okay. And it's to taste those two as two something quite separate experiences and to know that contentment is a, a figure of the Nibbanic mind. Yeah? One, of the, one of the qualities of the unconditioned mind is that there is no desire. So we can, we can experience that by watching right to the end point when the desire just... He goes out right at the end, like, like a light on a wick. He just goes, and it's out. And then just catch that peace in the mind and that's that contentment. Hmm? When the Buddha is asked, when the Buddha, somebody complains to him, as a deva, complains and says, look, this training is very hard. He says, well, it is, he says, but people do it, and they attain uh, liberation. And uh, Nibbana, and, and he says, Nibbana, yeah, but so what? <laughs> And he says, well, when, when you get um, liberated, you are contented and with it happy. Tutti huh? sukha You are contented and with it happy. So he's describing to this person his state of mind. He's contented and with it happy. That's the state of his heart. At peace, contented, happy. Hmm? Now we can, we, can, we can begin to taste that in these moments when especially desire has been very strong and we just watch it, feel it just dying away, because we're not feeding it. And, of course, the added uh, benefit of that is that uh, we get over our obsession with food. Hmm? Uh, the uh, The next thing, of course, that moves in are what's known as the four signs sometimes are three signs so you remember the story he's out hunting three times he comes across a very sick person a very uh, old bent over person and a corpse and in some in some stories uh, an ascetic sitting under a tree in which case there's that hope maybe there's a way out of this suffering so here he's um he's entering into what you might call his uh, what we would call these days an identity crisis you know some sort of uh, existential crisis, a sort of um, feeling of the absurd. If, um, if, you, if you believe, uh, if, if you say to yourself, uh, at the end of this life, there is complete disappearance, there's complete annihilation, that's it. You're stuck with this terrible fact that we're conscious and we're suffering. So why, you know, that, the idea of suffering becomes absurd. It becomes ridiculous. It becomes unreasonable, absurd, beyond reason. And um, I thought to bring along this, the myth of Sisyphus, whom some of you might know. So Sisyphus is, um, well, it just says he, he was, um, uh, going back to ancient Greek mythology, so he promoted navigation and commerce, but was avaricious and deceitful. He killed travelers and wayfarers, And from Homer onward, Sisyphus was famed as the craftiest of men. When Thanatos, Mara, the king of death, came to fetch him, Sisyphus put him in fetters. (laughs) So that no one died till Ares came and freed Thanatos and delivered Sisyphus to his custody. But Sisyphus was not yet at the end of his resources. For before he died, he told his wife that that when he was gone, she was not to offer the usual sacrifice to the dead. So, in the underworld, he complained that his wife was neglecting her duty and he persuaded Hades to allow him to go back to the upper world and, exp- and expostulate with her. But when he got back to Corinth, he positively refused to return until forcibly carried off by Hermes. It's a lovely story. And, of course, finally, he has to go to hell. He's in hell, you see, because he's been a bad boy. And his job is to roll a boulder up a hill. And when it gets to the top, it rolls back down. And so he's got to roll it back up. That's his job for eternity. <laughs> for eternity. And uh, Albert Camus, who was one of my favorite... Or, well, he was, yeah. Was one of those. Uh, A French existentialist writer, uh, actually wrote a book called Sisyphus, in which this became a motif for the absurdity of life. If, if you really, really believe all there is is annihilation, see, why get up in the morning to roll that boulder up the hill and go to sleep and then let it roll down again and next morning you've got to roll it back up the hill? And uh, when, <clears throat> when he was absolutely at one with this idea of the, of the absurdity of suffering, which I think the existentialists understood very well, they definitely understood the first noble truth, uh, he said that the only dignified way to approach this problem was to commit suicide. That was his answer. Luckily, he did not have to follow his own thought too much because he sadly died in a car crash in 1956. So <laughs> he didn't have to take his logic into action, you might say. So uh, this idea of um, you know, death, especially death, the whole process of dying, of, of of illness, of growing old, and then dying, unless there is some uh, understanding, then you have this. You know, you have to really face the whole thing of annihilation. And um, in last week, when I was answering a question about um, afterlife and uh, and rebirth and all that sort of stuff, um, one thing I one thing I like to say is that in terms of the uh, the Buddhist teaching. The people who don't believe anything's going to happen when they die, are, in my estimation, much more closer to becoming liberated than the people who are, for the simple reason that when we believe something is going to go on, it comforts us. The self, uh, the self comfort in the fact that oh, when I die, I shall be born. Even you know, I'll be happy if I'm born a rat, as long as I'm born, you see, as long as I keep going. This I. And so there's never facing, there's never facing the collapse of the self which happens at death. I mean, that's, that's supposed to happen. And uh, even, uh, I think Muhammad said, you have to die before you die. You have to die before you die. And I think even Christ put it in some sort of way. Unless, unless, unless you are born again, he put it in a more positive way, that's right, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You will not born again. So there's something about... Uh, you know, facing the horror of that point of complete loss of self, which is death, um, which is part of the uh, process of our liberation. And uh, this, uh, he's, he was so shocked by this that, uh, of course, he decided to leave home. So, in your meditation, when... Uh, these fears come up, you see, these fears of um, sickness, old age, and death, uh, go into them. You know, they've, come as, uh, they've come as messengers from the gods. They're there to awaken us. And remember that it's all, um, it's all delusion. It's all symbolic in the mind. You have to, as it were, remember, always go beneath the thought, beneath the image, to the viscera, to the actual mental state that's driving it have to go into that fear feel feel it get get accustomed to it get comfortable with fear hmm? and really really allow it to express itself right because uh this fear remember is always generated out of that delusion of self and as as that fear becomes a, as we become accustomed to fear that's mara you see that's the that's the expression of our fear uh, expression of our delusion so as we become a, accustomed to fear then, of course, the sense of self is disappearing. Yeah? The sense of self manifests through these negative states. But as we become accustomed to them, we see them. If you remember Mara, when he attacked the Buddha every so often, you know, Mara had to slink away because the Buddha saw him. You see? Seeing, feeling those emotions, burying ourselves in them, seeing them uh, even going beyond the idea of an emotion, beyond the idea of a feeling, to the constituents you know, like the feeling of sickness, the feeling of tightness, the nausea, getting right down to the physical level. And in so doing, it's a process of depersonalizing. You are depersonalizing the process. Hmm? And that, of course, uh, eventually relieves us. And hopefully we can stay steady in fear. So once we've lost our fear of fear, uh, what is to frighten us? And I shall quote uh, your own very great president, Roosevelt, who said... (laughs) Uh, what, what are we to fear but fear? I think I've correctly... Uh... <laughs> so uh, I'd like to bring our little talk to an end there, and I'm going to, um, uh, in, the, in one of the times anyway, I want to do an exercise rather than give a talk on um, looking at the body, um, an exercise of looking at our relationship to the body, uh, our feelings of disgust with the body and all that. These are, these are exercises that come out of the Satipatthana discourse. And then to move it uh, just towards the end, towards a little new age input of healing. And uh, uh, I'll tell you when I'm doing it, so that if, you, if, you don't, <laughs> if you're not particularly attracted to that, uh, you can you needn't come. Um, because somehow we have to find a way of making this uh, deeply meaningful to us in ourselves, rather than it just being um, stories, as it were. So, I can only hope that my words have been of some assistance to you, and I can only hope that even by the end of this course you will be fully liberated. Should we chant? Blessings. Now let's chant the verses of sharing and Through the goodness that arises with my practice, may my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father, and my relatives, The sun and the moon and all virtuous leaders of the world may the highest gods and evil forces, celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth and the Lord of death May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice. And through this act of sharing may all desires and attachments quickly cease. And all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind. With mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigour, may the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge, unsurpassed is the protection of the Dharma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord, the Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled.